I circle back to older singles. Why do I go there? Because women become educated, they work, they're professionally successful, they're independent, and then they come into a framework in which um, there's this, this hierarchy or this assumption that men do this and women do that. Now, I also want to pause and say that if that works for people, that's fine. What I try to clarify is where is there halakhic room for um, rethinking some of the traditional roles, given how non-traditional the trajectory of our lives are. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Two weeks ago, in my conversation with Dr. Michal Bitone in episode 190, we discussed the idea of creating synagogues that follow Orthodox halacha while embracing an egalitarian aesthetic. One of the ideas that we discussed was the balance between using Torah texts to determine normative Jewish law versus what Rabbi Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik famously described in his seminal essay, Rupture and Reconstruction, as the preeminence of the mimetic tradition— That is, a way of living that is less learned than it is imitated, observed, absorbed, and passed down to the next generation almost automatically. Rabbi Dr. Soloveitchik argued that today, the mimetic tradition is quickly giving way to a reliance upon written sources, even when those written sources directly contradict the common practice of generations. It's fascinating to me that while the new reliance upon text is usually associated with the move toward greater stringency, it can also be used to create leniencies that are technically permitted— but have never been applied because of a tradition that taught otherwise. This all has a direct bearing on how Orthodox Jews relate to the halachic roles of women in Orthodox society. There are numerous examples of areas where, in theory, halachic texts alone may permit greater women's participation than we normally allow, yet which we often shy away from because our traditions have dictated otherwise. When some attempt to increase women's halachic role in Orthodoxy, This tension comes to the fore and must be addressed. Finding halakhic solutions that favor text over tradition for the sake of greater openness might sound like a natural solution, but consulting text alone has plenty of dangers associated with it as well. For that reason, I was pleased to host Rabbanit Nahama Goldman-Barish, who just completed a forthcoming book that looks at Jewish texts relating to women, gender, and halakha. In this conversation, we deal with some very important issues regarding the roles that women should and should not play in Orthodox society. We talked about the introduction of women's voices into halachic discourse, as well as the fact that our classic texts generally do not offer women's perspectives on halacha, potential areas for greater women's participation, the question of women's halachic leadership, and the potential halachic problems with increasing their prominence there, and why it all matters. In addition, we spoke about some of the specific instances that people often ask about, including the meaning behind women's exemption from time-caused positive mitzvot, the Talmudic idea that a woman would almost always rather be married than single, tav tav tandu, and the morning blessing, shalom asani isha, who did not make me a woman, and much more. I found the conversation really fascinating, and I'm sure you will as well. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I released two new articles. The first is called The Ambiguous Good of National Unity, where I suggest that no matter our political leanings, everyone in Israel should want new elections, 
instead of relying on a somewhat false sense of national unity. And the second is entitled Good versus Evil in 2024, where I offer two ideas from the weekly Torah portion that I think are relevant to the situation in the Jewish world today. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rabbinit Nechama Golben Barish teaches contemporary halakha and Talmud at Matan, Midrashat Torah Vavodah, and the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. She moved to Israel in 1991 after graduating with a BA from Stern College in New York. Nachama holds a master's degree in Talmud from Bar-Ilan University and is a graduate of Nishmat's Yuvetzat Halakha program, which certified her to serve as an advisor to individuals with halakhic questions around marital intimacy and is a certified sex educator. She is an alumna of Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and Matan's Hilchata, an advanced institute for halakhic studies. Nachama is an active member of the rabbinic organization Beit Hillel and participates in Interfaith Dialogue with Roots, an organization based in Gush Etzion, where she lives. She is awaiting publication of her first book, Uncovered, Women's Roles, Mitzvot, and Sexuality in Jewish Law. Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. On this podcast, I've spoken before about women's roles in orthodoxy, but today we are literally speaking with the person who wrote the book on it. It's not yet published, but you, Nechama, have an upcoming work entitled Uncovered, a look at Jewish texts on women, gender, and halacha. It's a comprehensive review of some of the most pressing issues facing orthodox women today, including the ideas of misvot from which women are exempted, as well as issues like leadership, tzniyut, or modesty, tarat mishpacha, and more. Before we get into the specifics, though, I'd like to ask you about how you became involved in these questions, because these are questions that matter to many, but many others have left it to you, Nechama, to address them. Thank you. Good, great question. And I'll say that, you know, I my earliest recollections of, of observing the disparity between men and women's roles uh, probably goes back to high school, where I started to notice um, things like Simchat Torah being fundamentally different for men and women, and it bothered me. In other words, I came from a classic, very traditional Orthodox home, um, educated Orthodox home, but quite traditional in terms of the roles uh, of men and women. And I remember it bothering me uh, going to shul and seeing women kind of watching men dance. That was largely the model available in the 1980s when I was growing up and feeling like that's nice and it's inspiring, but it's not enough. So if you ask where it starts, that was probably one of the earliest moments where I began to question or wonder about the separate gender roles in in traditional Jewish society. Um, After that, I went to Stern College. I was studying uh, Talmud. I was studying Jewish text classes. I also spent a year in Michlala. And as I studied more and more Jewish text, I became more and more interested in the topic of women in halakha, women in, uh, in traditional society, through a halakhic lens, through a textual lens, through a societal lens. And I think that just directed me towards um, the kind of learning that was about these topics and that reinforced my interest and my desire to, to try to find my own voice in those topics. Okay, well, your book certainly does provide a voice, which I think is very important. 
And I want to mention something that you say, Nacham, at the beginning of your book. There are two specific challenges, you say, that face Orthodox women who want to be greater participants in Jewish religious life. First of all, Jewish law exempts women from many mitzvot, most famously from the category known as mitzvot aseshes mangrama, which is loosely defined as time-bound positive misvot, or perhaps time-caused positive misvot is a formulation which I prefer, though it may not be in line with the Rambam. And the second problem is that the Talmudic and other discussions that determine these laws, you say, were conducted entirely by men, and therefore they're deciding for women what their participation will be. So could you offer some examples of what you mean and to what you're referring in particular? Sure. So I think, you know, an excellent example is if I go back to the way I was educated and and the way young girls are still educated, often the reason women are exempted, we're told that women are exempted from positive time-bound mitzvot. Some of the examples of those which are important are sitting in a sukkah, saying the prayer of Shema, right? Listening to the shofar. And women aren't given actually those examples because many women do hear the shofar and many women do sit in a sukkah. Many women do say Shema. But you're basically told that women are exempt from this category. And the reasons often given are because women are more spiritual than men and, and women have to take care of the children. Now, first and foremost, as I show in, in the book, um, those are not the earliest of reasons given. They're actually, you know, I would say darker reasons or, or more negative reasons given. But secondly, um, it creates this, you know, authoritative framework in which women can't do these mitzvot. Women can't do all the same mitzvot as men. Now, traditionally, women didn't do many of these mitzvot. But when I talk about precluding participation, even those that are permitted become prohibited. And so one of the things I look at, and I'm very involved in, is the fact that women get married later and later. Women become divorced. Women are widowed, unfortunately, in this current war. Many young widows as a result of this war. And the discomfort women have in assuming roles in the family or in society that are uh, you know, pre- prescribed or, or essentially male-driven really becomes a problem for women who are not in marital relationships. And the language of exemption is very different than the language of prohibition, but I think it's often treated as a prohibition so women don't even know they they are obligated, potentially obligated in some mitzvot if there are no men. And that exempt means that they can choose in some cases whether to, in many of these cases, uh, whether they want to perform these mitzvot in order to increase their relationship with God in Torah. But Nechama, it's not just women who are single or widowed or divorced. It's also women in marriage. As you mentioned in the book yourself, there are situations in your own life and in other people's lives where, simply put, a woman might prefer to make Kiddush instead of her husband, which is certainly allowed pihalacha, even though classically it's perhaps frowned upon societally or just looked at it askance in some way. So, you know, I started with single women because I think the idea that women being single at later ages is, is a relatively new phenomenon that challenges um, this framework of clear gender divisions for women who are not able to fulfill things like Kiddush and and Hamotzi that the man traditionally does. What do I do if I'm 35 years old and I haven't gotten married and I'm constantly looking to be in a place where a man makes Kiddush for me, or I always feel like I shouldn't really be doing this, but I have to because I'm not married. So that, that, you know, I started there, but you're absolutely correct that 
Today, there are marriages in which couples wish to, the division they show in their household, they wish to have reflected also in some of the division with regard to ritual, uh, particularly, let's say, around the Shabbat table. And there's a reflexive no from the rabbinic community or from the you know traditional community, because traditionally that wasn't done. And so I circle back to older singles. Why do I go there? Because women become educated, they work, they're professionally successful, they're independent, and then they come into a framework in which um, there's this, this hierarchy or this assumption that men do this and women do that. Now, I also want to pause and say that if that works for people, that's fine. What I try to clarify is where is there halakhic room for um, rethinking some of the traditional roles, given how non-traditional the trajectory of our lives are from sexual puberty, where in the Mishnah and Talmud, you would have already been thinking of marriage, certainly as a young girl, uh, has radically changed through higher education, professional success, and so on. Things have changed and we live longer. And so everything looks very different. Can we maintain the traditional framework and yet rethink certain pieces of it so that men and women both feel more connected? I'd like to go back to what you mentioned a few moments ago about the reasons that women are exempt. And I don't mean the halachic reasons. I mean the philosophy behind it, which today in the 21st century most often is associated with either greater kedusha, women are holier. I know Ravara and Salvatic Datsal said, if you look at Breshit, you see the order of greater kedusha, greater holiness. It's almost an evolution. The earliest days of Breshit are the lower animals. It comes up finally culminating in the man, and woman comes after man, which indicates that she's on a higher level. Along with that, you also mentioned this other idea. Aside from the fact they may not need mitzvot, also they don't have time to do mitzvot because they have to take care of their children and frankly their husband as well, halachically. Now, you also said, however, that there are some less positive reasons that are given by authorities as to why women are exempt from so many mitzvot. And I think it would be wrong for us to only look at what we would consider more positive towards women texts and ignore the ones that are not as positive. So what are some of those texts? What are some of those reasons that are given that have a less positive explanation for this phenomenon? So I'm actually going to take us back to a Midrashic text that appears both in Breshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah, and in Avot Rabbi Natan, that the reason women do three of the mitzvot, right, challah, separating challah, lighting the Shabbat candles, going to the mikvah. I'll, I'll just in parentheses say, if you ask any women, woman why she does those mitzvot, she's only going to give you know, really wonderful reasons, nurturing and blessing and lighting up the home and purity, all of those very positive adjectives. But if you look at the earliest reasons given, it's actually quite surprising. It's um, it's about the sin of Eve, that Eve brought about the fall of Adam. And so those sources say explicitly, why does Eve take challah? Why does she take bread? Because she corrupted the bread of Adam because she brought blood or death into the world, because she extinguished the light of Adam. So that's a text that I think most people don't know. That's certainly, you know, I would say H.com or Chabad.org are not bringing on their websites. And that's the first attempt. Again, it's a midrash and it's an attempt at interpreting. Uh, and it aligns very nicely with those three mitzvot for which women die in childbirth if they don't keep, which is a Mishnah and Shabbat that we say on Friday night. So you end up with this idea that women do these mitzvot as a tikkun, as a restorative for original sin. 
which is not really a Jewish idea that has gone very far, thankfully. But really, again, if I'm looking for earliest reasons, suggestions, that's one of the earliest ones. Women do certain mitzvot to restore what was lost in the aftermath of that first sin. If I look at positive time-bound mitzvot and women's exemption from them, and there are so many exceptions to the rule, both including women in positive time-bound mitzvot and excluding women from non time-bound positive mitzvot, right? Like your head can spin when you begin and do a real textual analysis of it. But the earliest reasons are, number one, she needs to take care of her husband. Nothing to do with the children. She has to be available. I believe it's the Abu Raham uh, or the, the Malamed Talmidim who says that um, she, you know, it's unthinkable that her husband will ask her to do something and she will refuse because she's in the middle of doing a positive time-bound mitzvah. So that's the first reason given, 13th, 14th century, really the first time we see a reason. I think Rambam says that there are no reasons. We don't know the reason. There's no obvious reason. There are so many exceptions and, and so on. And then later on, um, you have the idea that women are less spiritual than men that men are the spiritually superior sex, and that as a result, they have more mitzvot to reflect spiritual superiority. And it's something Rav Cook says as well in, uh, in a 19th century, early 20th century text. Uh, I don't think he meant to put down women, but I think he is continuing uh, a philosophical idea that men really are, um, are, are form, uh, I think men are form and women are matter. And it's this idea that the man really is, is the form and the woman was taken from that. And so she is a uh, secondary. And so those are earlier ideas being developed. I will say that I think the more positive ideas are coming about because of the shift in the way we look at women in society. And some of those ideas are coming from women. And so what happens when the conversation shifts and women begin expressing their own experiences with these mitzvot. And it no longer looks like a tikkun for spilling the blood of Adam, but I light these candles to bring light into my home because my primary role is wife and mother. And that's very different. That's a very different uh, language and direction. And it's definitely wonderful and, and, um, and welcome, but it's a 20th century shift. And I think it reflects a new uh, perception in how to frame these laws as women's mitzvot. And I always am in favor of finding new expressions or new ways of understanding these mitzvot. At the same time, I'm saying this as a Torah Jew or as someone who strives to be a Torah Jew, we can't ignore the fact that alpi halacha, at least according to certain halachic sources, if a man and a woman are both chas v'shalom, drowning at the same moment, and you can choose one to save, halakhically, the man takes priority because he has more mitzvot, which goes against that idea that women don't have as many mitzvot because they're already holy. If they're already holier, then that reason wouldn't make sense. If anything, you should save the woman because she's holier. But in fact, it says the man can do more mitzvot, so save him. I'm not sure how to answer that, but it's a reality. Yes, absolutely. Let's get back to the other question I asked about the androcentric nature of the text. Can you give some examples of that too? I'll refer to a conversation I had last week with two young women who are studying the laws of Nida. And they came to me and they felt they were very upset. They've been learning Talmud, Rishonim, right? The commentaries on the Talmud through the 15th century, 16th century, and then Shulchan Aruch from the 16th century on. And they felt very disturbed, very distanced, very alienated by the in-depth discussion by men 
of women's bodies and menstrual cycles and sexuality, et cetera. Uh, and that it was very, it was very difficult for them. And I think that that's the most obvious example to give, that the Talmud is filled with discussions of women's bodies and women's experiences, lived experiences, and we're, and we're not hearing from women. And, and I'm not coming with a critique about that. We don't really begin hearing from women until um, much later historically anywhere. Uh, however, these texts, of course, have tremendous impact in halakha and halakhic interpretation and halakhic application. And if I'm already using the example of nida, of laws of menstrual, uh, menstrual prohibition and sexual permissibility through immersing in a ritual bath, I can't ignore the enormous impact the last 30 years have had with women from various learning programs entering the field of answering questions and being actively involved in bringing women's voices to rabbinic awareness around their bodies and their experiences. And I've just seen how it's transformative. And, um, and, and these are programs both in Israel, uh, largely in Israel, meaning it's um, the Nishmat was the first, Matan as well has a halakha program that trains women to answer. Lindenbaum has a program. Um, these are programs that are at the highest level in terms of textual learning, along with uh, lectures from psychologists and uh, sex therapists and gynecologists, etc., so that women are in parallel learning some of the most important information about women's bodies and then are able to translate that into how they approach the questions they're being asked. And I've heard rabbis say, right, like, it's almost astonishing, right, that they didn't know some of this information, right? Hearing women talk about their own experiences uh, has just really transformed the way the rabbis are answering the questions, whether it's because women are asking directly, right, whether they call the rabbi or the yoetzet or the woman uh, who can answer their question, whoever they call, they're able to articulate what their body is uh, sensing, what they're emotionally feeling, which always has impact on halachic psak. And that's been transformative, the addition of women's voices. And I'll say another area where there it's been transformative is in the area of divorce, that if until, you know, not that long ago, it was largely assumed that it was better for a woman to be married, tandu, right? Better for a woman to be married in an unhappy marriage. I think Rev. Soloveitchik writes something about that. Then to be single, that's really no longer the case. And of course, I don't want to ignore that from the Mishnah on, the, the Talmud talks about women in unbearable marriages and tries to find solutions. But there's been a real restriction of how to open up situations in which a man does not want to give a divorce. And I think women entering that sphere as well, both as lawyers and halachic advisors uh, and, um, and the women themselves, the women seeking the divorce in terrible situations themselves has helped create more compassion and more willingness to find halachic uh, solutions. I want to get back to Tavla Metav Tandu in just a moment, Rav Soloveitchik. But before we get there, you did tell a story, which you alluded to, I think, right now in your book about women who wanted to immerse by themselves in the mikvah. And I was hoping you could say that because I found that very interesting. Sure. The story of a woman who was uncomfortable having the balanit, the mikvah attendant, watch over her while she dunked in the mikvah. 
there have been a few areas where I really feel, you know, if we talk about top down, bottom up. So now I'm going to go to the women who are keeping the laws of, of family purity, or I prefer to call it the laws of NIDA, the laws of, uh, of menstrual prohibition. And um, I'll also say that I believe there's a tremendous resurgence in interest in keeping these laws. Meaning what I've seen is not what I believe happened in the 20th century, where a lot of women stopped keeping these laws. Again, we don't know the numbers, we don't know how many, but the idea of a mikvah rather than a shower, right? You have indoor plumbing and the baths and the, and the showers. And there's been some literature written about this. Um, the, the idea that the mikvah is dirty and it's cleaner to, to immerse in a shower at home, right? Like there, there was a lot of stuff going on in the 20th century. But what I've seen is a real resurgence. And if I had to guess historically, there are probably more women keeping these laws than at any other time, both because we're a bigger population, there's more awareness, there's more information, there's more education, all of that. And because I believe couples are genuinely looking for meaning in their sexual intimacy. Okay. What this means is that women, I already talked about the women who are actively part of conversations around their body, their intimacy, and their sexuality, um, is that first and foremost, women are very aware of when they ovulate, what their fertility is. Um, they're aware of their sexual needs, which as much as in Judaism, we talk about the fact that a man has the duty to provide his wife with sexual relations and the woman has the right. The sources are a little sticky as to what that, how that plays out and what it looks like. And, and I'll just quote Dr. David Ribner, who is one of the, you know, kind of the, the veteran sex, Orthodox sex therapists with smicha from YU and so on in the field. He said, you know, today, even the Hasidic women are talking about sexual pleasure, and I'm going to quote him, and frankly, the men are terrified, right? I remember him saying that, and this idea that women are not now articulating, well, it's our right, and we want to talk about what that means for you to me, as opposed to, you know, just, you know, kind of being nice and sensitive and emotionally uh, available while we're having sex. So things have really changed in that sense, certainly in the last 40, 50 years, and and it, the speed at which it's changing in the Orthodox community in the last five is incredible. So women are very aware. And as a result, when they approach these laws, there's um, there's knowledge, right? There's articulation. There's, you know, women who study their cycles, who can come and already say, you know, I'm ovulating before I go to the mikvah. This is an issue, right? That's coming from the women, even, even before it's coming from the doctors, because women are very interested in, um, let's say, fertility awareness method. They, they want to know what's happening with their bodies, and they don't always want the rabbi to give you know, a, a, a uniform solution, right? As to take this hormone, do this. No, this is my body. I want to be part of the decision-making process. Um, so if I if I now shift to the, the question of mikvah, I think, you know, if I go back around 10 years, there began to be a crisis in Jerusalem. Really, I like to call it a holy war, uh, really a, a milchama between Orthodox women in Baca, and if you know anything about Jerusalem in Baca, there are a lot of Americans, feminists, right? Orthodox feminists. It's a very learned population. And there happens to be one mikvah where the mikvahs are in the room. So you don't have to buzz and then walk down the hall to go to a communal mikvah. There are actually mikvahs, it was the old way they used to build them, in the room. So you would call the, the mikvah attendant into your room so she could observe your immersion and then she would leave, right? So this is important to understand why Baca became such a such a 
flashpoint for this, this holy war. And what began to happen is women would come and they would go to the mikvah without buzzing the buzzer and calling in the attendant, and then they would leave. And the mikvah attendant would run after them, screaming, it's not kosher, you can't do that, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, you know, cur- you know, things. And, um, and this began to spread. And women began basically agitating and pushing for going to the mikvah without a mikvah attendant. And I want to talk about it not only through a feminist lens, I want to talk about it through a halakhic lens. Because if I go back and look at the sources, it turns out that the first one to mention another woman standing over the immersing woman is Rabbeinu Asher, is the Rosh in the 13th century. And his language is very clear. A girl over 12 shall supervise to make sure no hair sticks out of the water, which will invalidate the immersion. Right. So he gives a very specific reason. He explains the pressing need. Of course, there's no electricity at the time and uh, and so on. And you have a contemporary, the Ra'avad, another very important Rishon, who says, well, no, you don't really need to do that. A woman could just tie her hair in a hairnet. So you end up with two parallel voices, both legitimate, until the Shulchan Aruch, in his codification, puts the rush before the Ra'avad, which makes sense if you know the Shulchan Aruch, because uh, he uses the rush as one of the three pillars that he rules by, and the Ra'avad is always going to be secondary. Anyway, so he puts the rush first, the Ra'avad. Meanwhile, history continues, and there are mikveh attendants, and they observe the immersion, and I think for good reasons, safety reasons, practical reasons, halakhic reasons, it makes a lot of sense. We get to the late 20th century, and women discover these sources, learned women in Baca, right? Jew- you know, the, the Orthodox Jewish feminists who can open a Gemara, who can open a Shulchan Aruch. And they look, they, they go through all the material and they begin to say, I, I don't see any reason why we need a mikvah attendant today. Meaning there's electricity. The mikvah is very, um, very, you know, it's a small confined space. I know when I go under the water and hey, it's my mitzvah. It's actually no one else's responsibility, right? Again, this idea of agency, this idea of it's my body, it's my mitzvah and you, the mikvah attendant don't need to be present. You know what, if I get it wrong, that's okay. That's between me and God and me and my husband. It's not about you. And so this battle really gets quite heated. I was at a, a meeting with the, the, the religious affairs authority in Jerusalem, and, and it was really heated, like yelling at each other. And um, E-Team, the organization E-Team, ends up taking it on and ends up um, applying to the Supreme Court, to the Bagats, and they come to a compromise that um, that will allow women to immerse according to their uh, custom, according to their practice. And the second part is equally interesting. They will no longer ask women their marital status. So I'm now going to put an addendum here. And uh, perhaps this is more relevant for your Intimate Judaism podcast. But there's also there was also, and there continues to be a phenomenon of single women going to the mikvah, single women who are sexually active going to the mikvah to avoid the greater transgression of having sexual relations as a menstruant, right? Which comes with the punishment of karet, which no one really knows what it is, but it sounds pretty bad. It's not good. So this is not new. Already in the 70s and the 80s, tefillin dates, the idea of women going to the mikvah before becoming um, uh, sexually active with their partners um, is not a new phenomenon. But because Israel is a place where you have public funding going for mikvah, it's a place where this debate legitimately can go to the court because taxpayers' money go to buy the mikvahs. And so then the question of coercion is, uh, or who gets to control the mikvah, 
is an important question, unlike in the diaspora, where it's privately funded and the rabbi supervises, right? So it's gonna look different there because there legitimately the community can say, we the Orthodox community funded this and we get to decide the standards. In Israel, it's legitimate for the public to say, we funded this and so we should be able to have some say in who gets to go to the mikvah. Okay, and so that's also part of this. So as part of the compromise, it was agreed, mikveh attendants would no longer ask, which is what they were doing, asking women they were suspicious of, and they would allow women to um, immerse without a mikveh attendant if the women asked. And I found it you know, interesting that in the aftermath of that decision, every mikveh had to put up a big sign, we had one in our mikveh, that said, Single women may not immerse in the mikvah, and then in small letters, but we can't ask you what your marital status is, right? Small, very small. Well, what was the compromise? I only hear, the it sounds like one side won. You cannot ask single women their marital status. You cannot ask a woman her marital status, and a woman could go without an attendant if she asked to go without an attendant. No, but what that I was, mean is that that doesn't sound like a compromise. It sounds like the other side won, meaning no more yeah, asking. The other side, the other side won. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't really a compromise then? It wasn't, well, I think it was a compromise because they agreed that it wouldn't go through the Knesset. I think they decided it would uh-huh. be a ruling, but not a, it didn't reach the status, I think, of law. I, th- there I was see. something there. It was a legal it compromise of sorts. I got it. It was a legal compromise. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. To show that they were very displeased with this decision, everyone, you know, like these big signs, single women, you may not immerse, but we can't ask you your status. You must have a mikveh attendant. But in small letters, every woman is entitled to immerse according to her custom. And so it's still not an easy, you know, it's not a simple situation. And there are some mikvot that still fight it. But women, the reason it came to this is because women began really embracing the idea of my mitzvah, my body, my feeling comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with another woman. And you've already told me from childhood I can say when something's not comfortable, right? This whole thing of me too, or training our children and girls to say when something isn't, isn't comfortable and boys, I hope, right? And suddenly you have the mikvah and it's just assumed you're going to be in the water undressed and you're going to have a mikvah attendant and that's fine. And women began saying, no, we're not fine with that. That's not comfortable. And I remember having a conversation and I cited in the book with, with a Rav, I'm, I'm, you know, I very much respect. A well-known Rav. Well-known Rav. And what he said to me was, it never occurred to us rabbis that a woman would have a problem with a woman. It never occurred to us. And that you know, information became important for some rabbanim to be able to, um, to come on board with uh, women going without a balanit. And I will still say I'm deeply disappointed in rabbis like in mainstream communities who are still fighting it. Who are like, no, it's wrong. You shouldn't, right? Tradition, it's the tradition. I will say I'll let my perhaps, I don't know if it's my feminist hat or my sexual misconduct representative hat because I'm a sexual misconduct uh, rep, you know, officer at, at Pardes. I think if a woman is uncomfortable with another woman being in a space where she's not wearing clothes, then the woman should be able to choose that uh, pra- the practice, especially since halakhically, everyone agrees Bidiyevit, it's okay, right? If she can, if she can make sure her hair goes under the water. And I think we're not taking seriously enough what women are bringing into the mikvah and what body issues they might have, what trauma they might have. I once had a woman, just I'll share one more story quickly, where she um, she came into the mikvah and she she said, I hate this mitzvah. And I said, why? And she said, because all the mikvah attendants are thin. 
And I thought, whoa, right? Like that wasn't about trauma, but that was about her own trauma and discomfort with her body. And I said to her, please go in by yourself, right? Uh, uh, please. And she came out and she said, that was the first time I relaxed and enjoyed the mitzvah. And I think that's where, when we started this, Scott, and we talked about male voices, female voices, we need to listen to those voices. I think that's so important, especially that story where this rabbi said, we had no idea the importance of female voices to be able to have the willingness to ask the question. And also very often, as we know, someone to whom they're willing to ask it. It's not always so simple. They want to say to a rabbi a certain thing that's very uncomfortable for them privately. Being able to speak to a U.S. Atalachah, for example, can change the game seriously. But at the same time, Nechama, that leads to my other question about Tav Tav Tandu, that a woman, according to Masachi Kedushin, would rather be married than be single. And you mentioned Rav Salvechik. As I understand it, Rav Salvechik said, that is a chazaka. That's an absolute psychological rule. And you suggested... No, it's not. This is something which is a societal rule. Now, I'm not trying to get you into an argument with Rav Soloveitchik, but it does raise the question, as far as I'm concerned, of women's voices in the Talmud and women's voices in the Rishonim and the Achronim before the 20th and 21st centuries. Because it's one thing for women now to be able to speak up, to be able to have a role in halachic decision-making. That's not going to change the fact that for the previous 2,000 years, that was not the case, and certain ideas were established that Orthodox Jews accept. I accept them. You accept them. And the fact is, the Gemara does say, tav metav tandu, a woman would rather be married than be single with whatever ramifications that may or may not have. And my question for you is, what do we do about texts like that? What do we do about the fact that although women today do have, thankfully, a greater voice— they didn't have a voice in the past, and yet those are our normative sources. That is the source from which halacha grows. How do you handle that issue? So I would say as follows. First of all, that that statement, Tav Tandu, which I believe was Rava, I don't have it in front of me, who's an Amora, comes into deep conflict with earlier sources in the Mishnah, in the Tosefta, uh, and in early Amoraitic uh, texts, uh, Rav, for instance, who recognized that a woman would not wish to be married, she would rather not be married than be married to a dog poop collector or to be married to a man who uh, tans skins, right? Because both of those had terrible odors or has polyps in his nose, right? So it's the stench is terrible. Now, it's the question is, do we extrapolate from those or do we limit them? I'm going to say that's a different halakhic conversation and we certainly can have it. Rav says a man who doesn't feed his wife properly, right? So those are all examples of either abuse, right? We could say rub with the abuse or um, or the examples of women who just find it unbearable to be married to men who who smell tremendously or, you know, because of their profession or because of personal hygiene and so on. And so Tandu comes along. And so now I have to say, do I need to reconcile these sources? Do I override the Mishnah and Rav's statement in favor of Rava's statement? Those are, again, interesting conversations to have, but I don't think we need to take Tavlametav Tandu as an absolute halachic imperative, given that through the Rishonim over and over, there are women who come before the court with men who are treating them badly, who are essentially begging for divorce, and, and the rabbis are sympathetic. They can't always find a solution but they certainly understand the need of these women to get out of these marriages. So I think it's it's an interesting statement. I do want to say, I think by and large, even today, women are more driven towards committed companionships, committed relationships 
than men are, right? If I look at the single ratio of men and women, I'm gonna to go to the Upper West Side now where I have a lot of my students, my, my TVA students, and the women cry to me, they're in their mid twenties, they're dying to be and committed and then moving towards marriage relationships. And they talk about how the guys coming out of the parallel yeshivas who didn't get married at 21, 22 in kind of the frummy way of dating are players, they're playing around, right? And their behavior, by the way, Scott, if I can have a moment, where are the rabbis to talk to these men about being mentioned, to use a Yiddish expression of my grandmother? The behavior of the men, the religious men on uh, in single communities is absolutely appalling. In the texts they send, in the way they break off relationships, in the expectation of what they expect these young women to be providing uh, on dates, right? Like it's it's actually astonishing and appalling. And I don't think we're crying out enough about it. But if we go back to Tav Lametav, I will say my experience is many, it is true, many women by the time they don't want to get married necessarily at 18 or 21, but by 24, 25, 26, 27, they very much want to settle down. They want to begin having families and they're not finding that same, you know, urgency uh, uh, in the in the men that they're dating. And that's very, very difficult. So there is Tav Lametav to some degree. However, I'm also going to say women do not just want to be married to anybody, which is why if I look, I'm, I'm, you know, the Nebuch men, the men who are not so successful, who are a little bit of a schlepper, right? My students don't want to date those men. If I would say to them, look, guys, if you really want to get married, look at all these. They're nice guys. They're nice. They'll treat you well. They'll be like, no, we want a successful man and an educated man and a good looking man and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's also, you know, that that disparity also needs to be talked about. But um, so it's not at all costs, right? They don't want to get married at all costs. Okay. I'm going to push back a little bit because Tavlameth of Tandu is one example of many, though. And I really am referring to the larger philosophical question of okay. the fact that there aren't women's voices by and large. Obviously, there are some exceptions, but by and large, there are not women's voices represented in the Gemara. And the discussions that determined, as you said before, the biological discussions about Nida and the Shulchan Arach, they don't involve women's voices. So I'm asking you, Nechama, as a religious woman, how you handle that larger macro issue of the fact that women's voices are absent from conversations that have a direct bearing upon their lives? So, you know, I feel very much the privilege of having uh, entered the world or of, of young adulthood, you know, from the time I was 18, into a world in which it became increasingly acceptable for women to study these texts and add their voices to these texts, right? This idea of uh, having a woman's Beit Midrash, or occasionally I find myself in a mixed Beit Midrash, but the idea that Torah study at the highest level um, began to be increasingly available, the idea of studying Talmud and then moving on to Rishonim and to Akronim and to, and to Shulchan Aruch and to you know, studying Nida and then Shabbat and then Kashrut. Um, we can talk a little bit about the reality in which women's programs are not as rigorous as some of the top men programs. I, I'm happy to talk about that. But by and large, the women I know are incredible scholars. Some of them, by the way, also have academic scholarship, which not all men in parallel programs will have. They'll have masters, they'll have doctorates, uh, which also adds a degree of scholarship. Uh, and um, and I think that I, I often start my lectures by acknowledging the privilege. I didn't have to fight for this, meaning the women who were fighting in the 60s and 70s paved the way for me to be able to um, to be able to study. And every stage I was ready to up the ante and to, to study more and at a higher level, a program would open. It really was like that. 
Um, I think the problem today I see is that I don't see enough younger in the younger generation with the kind of burning need that I had to continue learning. And I wonder why, but I think that's a problem in Jewish education across the board. I, I think there's a, a lack of interest in pursuing kind of Jewish education programs. Uh, women, for the most part, don't serve as pulpit rabbis. And so even professionally, right, what are you going to do if you go to an advanced Talmud program, you're going to go teach. And there's been a lack of interest in uh, in teaching. So I'm just with before I go astray uh, on a different topic, I'll say that I felt the privilege and I have constantly felt that um, there is interest in my voice, both intellectually and uh, and religiously and halakhically with the awareness that right in, in the areas in which I operate. Uh, and so I teach and I answer questions and I write and I wrote this book and I sit with Beit Hillel, which is a rabbinic organization. And every so often I present a halakhic topic uh, that I've researched and that I feel knowledgeable about. And, and it matters, right? There's a certain respect given to women who are, who are studying and who are interpreting and who are available to answer questions. I'll just go to a colleague of mine, uh, Yordana Kopiosef, who is now one of the foremost experts in both as a lawyer and as a, a halachaist in fertility and halacha, right? Like people consult her, the men on the bait team, the rabbis on the bait team consult her about um, halachic topics having to do with surrogacy and single motherhood and, and in vitro and, and you know, de all sorts of things. Uh, and that, you know, that's that's astonishing. Okay, thank you for that. I'd like to ask you about something that you wrote. You said that, I'm going to quote you now, social norms are more compelling than actual halachic determination. And obviously referring to the way that halacha is often practiced. Now, we often talk about the mimetic tradition of Judaism. That is the reality of what is done and what the community has established for itself, quite apart from the textual tradition which is written down. In fact, in my recent episode with Dr. Michal Bitone, we noted that Rabbi Dr. Chaim Salvechik's very well-known article, Rupture and Reconstruction, showed that the mimetic tradition was dominant in orthodoxy until recently. Obviously, his article is somewhat controversial, but using his article as a basis right now, he talked about how the more right-wing communities seem to have abandoned it largely in favor of a textual formalism. And what we talked about in that episode is that in a sort of parallel, interesting way, some of the left-wing orthodox and non-orthodox movements have done the same thing, textual formalism, finding a way to be more lenient, whereas the more right-wing communities have found a way to be more stringent, both of them, however, looking at the text. The classic orthodoxy, according to Rabbi Dr. Soloveitchik, was this mimetic tradition, this idea that people do what Jews do because that's what we do, and the text is part of that but not determinative. I wanted to ask you, Nechama, how you see the mimetic tradition versus the textual tradition, because that relates directly to what we're talking about. Because a lot of the ways that innovations in halacha can take place is by going back to the text. Whereas on the other hand, we might say, it doesn't really matter, because if that's not how Jews do it, then if Jews traditionally have major gender differences, even if halachically, according to the text, those aren't necessarily the case— Nevertheless, the tradition says this is how it works and we shouldn't try and change it. I'm curious how you would address that issue. So I think that's where I find myself neither in the right wing camp you're describing or in the left wing camp you're describing. Um, I'm probably more moderate and nuanced than either of them are. And I don't believe in formalism. And I believe in the ability of halakha to be, uh, the, the power of halakha is its ability to be responsive um, to 
situations. I'll just give an example from the war, uh, which I we talked about when, when you and I were in Limo together. Um, the idea that major halakhic post game are responding to acute situations of need, soldiers coming back from the battlefield, the women aren't supposed to go to the mikvah for a few days, with unbelievable piskei uh, halacha to permit the couple to be together. And I'm not going to go into details, but it, it, anyone who, who knows anything will understand where I'm going. On a one-by-one -one basis, not in a, you know, right, not in a, uh, you know, uh, a shoot, something that they're putting on the internet, but, um, it, you know, to me, that is the power of halakha, right? To to see um, the, the, the thousands of years of um, both practice and text and be able to extrapolate in order to give an answer to an acute situation. And so I think the left wing has try, goes too fast and the right wing locks itself down and doesn't want to move at all, is it right? So um, I think in between, there's a lot of room for nuance and movement. And the question is how fast and who moves and how does it happen and so on. And so the, the example I'll give is, is already, I'm going to give it and people are going to be like, well, that's not, you know, what's, what's exciting about that or controversial about that, but I'm going to give it anyway. Megillah readings for women. Okay. In the 1980s, when I was at Stern College, there were almost none. It was unheard of. Stern certainly didn't endorse it. I don't know if they do today. Again, I haven't been in America for many years, but, um, but it was really uh, quite controversial. And I would say, here we are 40 years later, and um, it's pretty common, certainly in Israel, and I believe in quite a bit of modern orthodoxy in the United States, and I'm not going to the more, let's say, liberal orthodox communities, for there to be women's Megillah readings for women. The controversial ones would be co-ed, right, right, where a man and a woman are, men and women are reading together, which you'll have in more egalitarian spaces. But, um, but the idea that after the first Torah reading, women gather together and they've learned the trope and they read for other women and fulfill the obligation, right? So that to me is a very interesting example of how over the decades, it began to slowly become more acceptable, largely because you saw women who were going to these Megillah readings and you realized it wasn't just about down with patriarchy, it was genuinely about um, fulfilling your mitzvah, connecting to the, you know, to, to the women reading for other women, not having a hurried second reading where a guy comes in and kind of reads it in 25 minutes so that, you know, you can just fulfill your obligation and he's read it already two or three times. Like, let's slow it down and be part of this mitzvah, which we were always told was because a woman, uh, you know, was the heroine and, and, and saved the Jewish people. And so I think that really is a magnificent example of how the beginning started with a lot of anti, and I know there are still places where it's not fully accepted. I know that. I wish I could say we we finished fighting that battle. I know that's not true, but it has become much more acceptable and much more acceptable for, for firmer women to go to that kind of Megillah reading. And I'll even say in my own community, I saw, I've been there already for 27 years. I would say the rabbi of our community really, really fought it for the first 15 it really was something he was he was very much against. And at a certain point, he there was just a shift, right, in his attitude. And then he and I began talking about a Torah and some Torah for us to dance with in a separate space, right? And, and he gave a sheer supporting the idea, right? Like things sometimes take time. And I I'm, you know, I'm a believer in let's not be apologetic and brush away the complexity or the feelings of 
uh, alienation or disenchantment that women might have. I'm also not a believer in like, let's break the whole structure and build build from scratch, right? Like that that doesn't work. Or let's let's cherry pick a source here and there and come to a sock that works for us. That's not my, uh, that doesn't speak to me. Um, I think there has to be something more holistic, something more organic that uh, that is about both social norms and about halachic text, right? That uh, that meeting point in which um, society begins to recognize that there might be time for a reframing or a reworking or a relooking at certain certain things, like women's Megillah reading, right? Which had never happened; it was not tradition. And then maybe maybe we can soften and not be afraid of this, and let's see where it takes us. So I I I'll go back to what I said earlier: the permitted but prohibited. Right, the idea of women saying kiddush, right? It's so threatening. It's very, very threatening. And yet, what do I do with single women who are living alone, who are making kiddush now by themselves because they don't have uh, a man to make kiddush, and that's absolutely what they should be doing. And now they come into, let's say, a co-ed space. Do we immediately default to the man? In other words, they now go to a singles meal, and a woman says, "Look, I'll make kiddush. I make it every Shabbos when it's just the girls, right? Like this is my mitzvah." But is the default immediately to the men or do we say, no, something has shifted here in which it's not an automatic right default to the men, given that it is a woman's mitzvah. And for women who don't have men around, it is an obligation. It's not just a mitzvah. They must make kiddush. So that's the kind of process I'm talking about. What you're saying now, Nechama, reminds me of something that I heard from Rav Schechter, who, in fairness to him, I'm sure would disagree with a lot of what you're saying. <laughs> At the same time, I know that he used to speak in our yeshiva, and more than once I heard him say that people make a mistake by thinking that Judaism isn't antique or the Torah isn't antique. You can't touch it. You can't touch it. And he said, that's not true. The Torah is meant to be used. It's something which you can touch, and you can, I'm going to use the uh, dreaded word, change, meaning there is room for halachic innovation in places where that is appropriate. Again, I don't think that the areas you're talking about is an area that he would agree with, that it should have halachic innovation, but he does acknowledge that there are halachic innovations in general that are necessary, and that's actually tradition. Tradition is that halacha grows with the times. So if you already mentioned Rav Shafter, I'll go back 35 years where I was a writer for The Observer, the Stern College newspaper, and I wrote an article on women touching Sefer Torah, and I called him, and he said, a Sefer Torah can't be Makabel Tuma. But on the other hand, it's very taboo. One of the biggest fights, and I mentioned this in my book, and, and it saddens me terribly, one of the biggest fights in modern Orthodox communities is allowing the Sefer Torah to be passed through the women's section, right? It's like, as if if that happens, who knows where we'll go from there. But I will say he did, you know, because he's such a, you know, he has so much halachic integrity, and 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 of course, as a dead body can fall in the Sefer Torah, it's not a Kabbalah tumor, right? So a menstruating woman, that's what we're worried about. I remember that's what he basically, he basically said in his harif way, the way he used to be very sharp, which is like, there's no, that's not the issue. It doesn't mean he would permit it in his synagogue, by the way. But in terms of the reason often given, women can't touch the Sefer Torah because they menstruate, that's a fallacy. That's an inaccuracy. Now, it's a convenient inaccuracy. So here, Scott, it speaks to part of what I was talking about earlier, right? The idea that that becomes the narrative. Women can't because they're, they menstruate. And then you discover, well, for the most part, that's not true, right? That maybe there's a minority opinion here, there that says that. But the majority opinion firmly agrees with what Rav Shachter said, Sefer Torah can't be Makabel Tuma. Okay, so now what's the reason you're giving women, right? That that question of what do we do when the reason that we were giving for all these years is no longer relevant. We're now in a modern Orthodox community. Women study Torah. It's one of the things I said to the rabbi when we were talking about Simchas Torah. I said, you know, quote Harav. 
I learn Torah every day of my life. And you're telling me I can't hold the Sefer Torah? This is my life. Like there's something painful about keeping me at arm's length from the text. It's I, I don't read from it on Shabbat, but to not let me hold it, to not let me touch it, right? There's something so sad to me that that becomes a space in which there is fear and um, and and a, a kind of a firm crackdown against any sort of movement. Yeah, I can only say that I was shocked. It was maybe two months ago. I learned that my wife did not know what the inside of a Sefer Torah looks like. Apart from 12 years of day school education, she also learned several years in high-level women's learning programs. And the fact that she could go that long learning and never have seen the inside of a Sefer Torah simply... There's something about that which is discordant to me. For me, it was just a moment of clarity that, wow, there is something wrong when that kind of distance exists between learned religious women and the Torah that they're trying to observe. Yeah, and I, and, and as I said, we came to a wonderful, um, not just compromise, a, a, a halakhic solution that the Rav of our community gave. We get two Sefer Torahs, and we read the Torah also in a Moadon, in an area at a distance from the shul, not connect, not in the shul. And that was what he was comfortable with. And fine, how, how many women cry? The young girls can't even appreciate it, but I get these older women who have never seen the inside of a Sefer Torah and they literally start crying. It's just this visceral response to, this is mine and I've never been allowed close to it. So I, you know, I, a lot of it is L'Shem Shammai, this, this desire, uh, the way women are keeping the, the, the whole mikvah conversation we had. It's L'Shem Shamayim. It's this idea, I want to keep these mitzvot. I want to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I want to be, I, I want to feel connected to Torah. But what I have been given until now is not adequate. And what do I do with that? What other sorts of halachot do you think we should try to find new avenues within them to allow greater participation for women that right now we don't have in the mainstream Orthodox community? So, you know, I think probably... Probably the biggest space right now that needs to be rethought is the, is the shul, is the synagogue, uh, because that's the place where women are really very, very passive. And I'm not even going to talk now about should women read Torah or not. There are what are called partnership minyanim, which have observant people in them. I know Rav Henkin, I think, was famous for saying, but that's not orthodox. Okay, you know, if if a thousand of them opened up tomorrow within the Orthodox community, we can re, you know talk about it, or even five hundred. But um, but I think shul has become a place that um, for many women is just is not is is not that relevant, not that interesting. Also for men, I recognize we have issues in shul for men. Also, there's something tedious, rote, routine, a little boring, right? I recognize that men who are interested, of course. Uh, have the ability to lead services and read Torah. So that gives them the opportunity. Not all of them want it, right? There's a lot of talking that goes on in the men's section. I see it all the time. Um, and I think there are women, and I've, I want to defend these voices, who are happy with the passive role, right? The idea that they come and they can just dive in, right? They come and all they have to do is pray and they're behind a machitza. Some women really like that that um, concealment that they feel like they're concealed from the men. And so they can really just be with themselves in the uh, in the in the prayer space. But I'll, I'll share a story. I won't name the community. It's abroad uh, that I went to for a Shabbat. And I think it's a very good example of what I'm talking about. And it was a Shabbat of, uh, for young people. It was called Young People's Shabbat. And basically what it meant was they allowed the young boys to lead services and read Torah. It, the entire service was going to be run by the young men, men over thir- young men over 13. They were already bar mitzvahed. 
Yeah, I think I actually might have had an, an underbar mitzvah lead the psuke de Zimmer, read that first part of the service, whatever a young boy can do. But the point was the energy was incredible, right? There was incredible excitement. They were the gabayim. They were the ones calling people up to read the Torah. Like they, they took mastery and ownership over the service. And it was a wonderful thing to see. Um, I'll say a few things. So I got there early, which is what I do. Um, and I kept waiting for the mothers of the young boys to show up. And a lot of the mothers came late. I knew they were, and I was a little surprised. I'm like, what do you want to see your young boy uh, doing this? Oh, no, I got here when I got here. There were almost no young girls in shul in that synagogue. Um, some of them were setting up the kiddush. That's what they were given to do, right? And so um, one more thing I'll say is the machitza was one of these one-way mirrors that was so transparent, I sat in the front row, that I felt like I was in the men's section, meaning it felt actually a little immodest to me that I, the men would walk right by and I could see their feet, their socks, the the the, the fabric of the, the carpet. It was actually, on one hand, wonderful. It was like I was sitting in the men's section. They couldn't see you, though. They couldn't see me, right? I was invisible to them. So the whole experience unnerved me a little bit both the, the complete gap between what the young men were striving towards, what they were being invited towards, the energy, right? That sense of this is ours and, and we're being given the opportunity to master it and where the young girls were. And you'll see that repeat itself uh, in many, many, many communities. Um, and and then even the attitude towards Mechitza, which is, okay, as long as we don't see you, it doesn't matter how much you can see us also bothered me because at the end of the day, um, we are, uh, you know, women will eye men, maybe not, maybe not quite as less viciously um, as, you know, with, with, with the Yates there that the Talmud says men look at women, but certainly there is that, uh, that ogling or eyeing or awareness of the other, of the men. And yet that, that's not an issue because of the way Halakha looks at uh, the male gaze versus versus female. There is no female gaze, right? There's only the male gaze. So, um, so you know, when I talk about shul, the question is, what are we offering girls and women in shul? Now, it's true, naturally, older women, once they finish childbearing, naturally migrate back to shul. It's true. There's also the communal piece. You're done with your childbearing. You want to get out of the house. You'd like to, you know, hopefully it's because you also like to daven and hear the Torah reading. But what are we offering these um, these young women so that they feel connected? And I think, you know, we go to these women who are getting married later and later. So the excuse of, well, they need to be available to take care of their children. Yes, that, you know, there are years where women are grateful that they don't have responsibility or uh, a role to play in shul. But what about all the years before and all the years after? And so I don't have a neat solution, meaning I think the partnership minyanim in which women lead some of the service and read Torah are spaces in which they're answering it in a, perhaps a more assertive or even aggressive way. They are using halacha, but a little bit in the cherry picking we talked about, right? Because it's certainly not tradition. Question is, why is that more of a problem? But women's mikila is not, not time for a whole halachic uh, uh, ser sermon. But um, but what are we offering? And, you know, and for instance, it saddens me that in, in many communities, a woman cannot give a drasha or the Dvar Torah from the pulpit, right? Women can't, most will have women giving shiurim, maybe to the men, definitely to the women after shul. But what is the role model? What is the modeling there? Right? If we talk, what are we, what is the model? What are we offering? And, um, and that concerns me because I think that gap between what happens with women in other spaces and what's happening in synagogue is just growing greater, right? That sense that nowhere else am I as passive. Maybe I like to be passive, maybe I don't. 
but where am I engaged? Where am I connected? Where am I feeling ownership over? And, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, that's, I think, an excellent example of um, where I'd like to see some change. Okay. I want to give you a quote that you quoted Rabbi Moshe Meiselman as saying. You said that he said, what can be done if it is God's will that men and women serve their creator differently? And I'd like to know, Nechama, how you would respond to him. So I would not fully disagree with that statement. Well, I would probably say it differently, but I do think gender matters. And I don't think men and women are the same. And I think it's important that that we recognize there are there are di- biological differences, certainly, and that bio- those biological differences often impact other differences. Um, I think, first of all, every individual serves HaKadosh Baruch Hu differently. But I think that statement has led to hierarchy of power. That's my concern. That when we say, well, men and women, of course, men and women are equal in the eyes of God, but they serve differently. The differently get, goes back to the source you brought preferentially to men, right? Men have more mitzvot, men have more obligation, men are more visible, men are in the rabbinic courts, men are leading services, men are, are reading Torah, men are determining whether women can get divorces, when are, men are determining laws possibly about uh, about, about mikvah. And so um, there is a hierarchy there and a power hierarchy. And I would like to have that statement reframed. Yes, men and women can serve God differently, but it shouldn't result in a power imbalance in which women are vulnerable to decisions being made by men about women, right? Again, I, I don't think we need to remove men from the rabbinate any more than, you know, uh, that, that that would be ludicrous. I don't want to lose the men to gain the women. I don't think we want a world where women are in power and leave men out. That's also going to lead to power imbalance and hierarchy and corruption. But um, but I would like to see, you know, let's let's level the playing field more than it's been leveled. Um, so that there isn't there isn't this this hierarchy and this imbalance, and that when we say that statement, men and women are equal and and serve God differently, it's not about preference for one gender over the other in terms of their service to God. Let's talk a little bit about women's leadership roles within Orthodoxy. You point out that there are three technical reasons to prohibit a woman's participation as a halachic authority. In theory, one of them would be the issue of srara, in that a man can be a king, a woman cannot be a queen. There's no queen concept in halakha. It's prohibited. And that is extended by halakhic authorities, some halakhic authorities, to say there can't be any leadership roles. And of course, you look at Devora, Hanaviyah, and people like that. You say, well, they had leadership roles. That's explained however it's explained. The second one is actually related to Devora as well. A woman cannot be a judge because she's not allowed to give testimony. The same question with Devora arises there as well. But halakhically, that's a halakhic fact. And finally, there's the issue of snut of sort, or the distraction, the idea that men shouldn't be gazing at women, so therefore if they have some halachic leadership role, then they might be uh, violating some of the norms of tzniyut. So you, Nechama, are a yuetzat halacha, but as far as I know, you are not a rabbi. So I want to know what you think the future of women's halachic leadership is and can be. Yeah, great. So I think women are, and you know, are, are already involved in halachic leadership and in pastoral counseling leadership and have um, and and certainly in educational spaces of teaching Torah, um, I think women have made inroads. I think the idea of women being looked towards, certainly on the congress congregational rabbi level, as um, as a resource for answering questions like the the, the congregation 
educational rabbi would answer questions, right? Again, I have friends who are uh, far more learned than I. I, I did Shabbat and Kashrut, but I prefer not to answer questions. Uh, Nida, I'm really, really expertise in. Like I knew that I studied that really well, but I, I have friends who, who really were quite rigorous in everything they studied in Avelud and the laws of mourning and the laws of conversion. As I said, I have a friend in the fertility area, friends who studied the laws of divorce, and so I think women um, have shown that they are capable of answering questions that they are comfortable asking based on the trajectory, the, the 2000 year trajectory of halakhic sources, right? That, that movement from Talmud through today. And, um, and so, you know, one of the things we learned at Nishmat, the difference between psak halacha and yoet, to be a yoetzet, right? A yoetzet can answer questions that if you open up the Shulchan Aruch or you open up um, you know, uh, you competently can open up halakhic sources and reason out the answer, and it's a fairly straightforward, you know, answer, then that's that's what many rabbis do as well. And so I don't call myself a rabbi, I do not have smicha, but I, I feel comfortable answering questions that I feel comfortable answering, if that makes sense, because of the years I spent studying halakha and, um, and the fact that many of these questions repeat themselves. When do I seek added guidance? It's when I get a question that's more complicated, right? And so, so it's not that I don't think a woman can give up sock, but I will say that um, I'll often, and I hope men do this as well, right? If I'm confused or uncertain or I'm looking for something that I don't feel comfortable giving, then I'm going to go, you know, above, you know, uh, to, to a rabbi who has more expertise, or sometimes I'll call a Yoetzet Halakha with more expertise, right? I want to make that clear. And I'll talk out the situation and I'll ask if they're aware of any leniency, if there's any way to be lenient for the couple in this situation. Um, certainly, I once had a situation where I was asked about an abortion. Uh, it was not something I felt comfortable answering. And I called Rav Sherlo and I asked him, right, he's a very, uh, he's a rabbi who's very involved in that area. And I would hope that that anyone who answers halakhic questions would feel the, uh, the, the, the responsibility of doing that uh, at appropriate times. But what's the ceiling, though? What's the ceiling? In other words, do you think that women should be able to be post-gim, are you, or post-goat, do you believe that women should be able to be called rabbi or some equivalent title, or do you think that really is verboten? I think the more a woman studies and becomes competent, the more a person studies halakha and studies with people who have greater knowledge than them. So they're aware of the intricacies of halakha. Because of course, what, what I'm calling psak, which are the more complex and sometimes innovative answers to complicated questions, requires continuous study and access to authorities greater than yourself, right? I, I think that's the case, meaning, you know, kiviyaho, but I'll say it anyway. I think, again, the leap from lawyer to judge, judge to judge, up to Supreme Court, right? Uh, you, you constantly have to be um, aware of everything going on in the field and up on the, you know, the current literature or the most recent socks. And, and some of the older ones and consulting with people who have more knowledge than you. And I think, can a women do that? Absolutely, absolutely. And as I said, I, I have friends who are uh, uh, very, have a tremendous amount of expertise in the complex laws of divorce and they answer complex questions. Um, but a lot, I think the ideal would be the partnership, right? If the rabbinic courts partnered, I mean, they do, they consult, I know Rachel Levmore has consulted with the rabbinic courts and I'm a, a tremendous admirer of, of Dr. Rachel Levmore, who wrote the halakhic prenup right here. I'm just bringing examples that are low-hanging fruit. Women who made an impact 
by having halakhic knowledge and leadership skills, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and there are other areas as well. So I think if women continue to move upwards in terms of their knowledge, Dr. Michal T. Kaczynski wrote a wonderful afterword to a book by Dan Rabbi Daniel Sperber, bringing various examples also having to do with women in Psak and Psak Halacha that I think are noteworthy and, you know, they, they, they certainly are accessible and should be read by those interested. So I think we're seeing women enter areas of halachic leadership, and I could give more examples. And um, and people are beginning to recognize that. And I will say, well, first it's women who call women. I think now there's uh, more of an understanding that a man could call a woman in his community if he has a question and he feels that she has adequate knowledge to, to answer. So I, you know, I think with regard to halachic leadership, we need more women studying. I think we do need more rigorous programs, but I'm also going to say that my programs were fairly rigorous. It's just the time frame of the program was around the, the schedule of, of, of women, of nursing mothers, of mothers who have to go pick up from nursery school. Um, they didn't include the night Seder option that many men's programs have. And here we're going back to differences between men and women. I don't, I don't know if we want to create well, it has to be exactly equal like medical school and law school. Maybe here we can see that a woman's halakhic role, halakhic leadership is going to look different. Maybe there will be a glass ceiling largely because women aren't able to have access, right, to uh, to yeshivas in which you have the greatest uh, halakhic authorities. I will say, and I want to make that Rav, Rav Amar came and spoke to Matan when I was at Matan, meaning I have had the fortune to hear some of the big gedolim speak on halakhic matters, but I don't study with them on a daily basis. So it's not the same as someone who sits day after day in the shear of Rav Asher Weiss. But I think if I if I wanted to call Rav Asher Weiss, I could get a hold of him to ask a question or to reason out something, right? But I wouldn't have that intimate access of day to day. So, um, so I think women have gone far. The question is how much farther can they go? Um, and is there enough interest for women to push to get there? Regarding rabbi, it's very political, Scott, right? I, I have very deliberately chosen not to be rabbi. I don't want the headache or the balagan. It won't help me in any way. It will only politicize my Torah scholarship, which is not what I want to do. If I were in the States, I don't know what I would do. It would be even more political there. But but there I understand the women who have kind of fought that battle. And um, and through uh, Maharat, the Maharat program, um, there are women studying for smicha. There are women working in rabbinic positions that are doing incredible work. Um, and, and I'm very proud of them. But that's not what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And I think I had the privilege of living in Israel where it wasn't going to affect my parnasa. Let's be honest. I was going to make whatever I was going to make. And I felt that I would go further in um, access to more traditional communities by, by not looking for, for that title and not, uh, not using that title. And I have friends who presumably will disagree with me. And I have friends who will understand what I'm talking about. But I feel that um, using Rabbanit which has become, I don't have a husband who's a rabbi. So using Rabbanit, I know other women as well. There was a decision to try to find a traditional title to reflect Torah scholarship of women. So it wasn't meant to come in and, um, you know, challenge. It was meant to be more reflective of the process of the last 30 years and the amount of halakhic and Torah scholarship that women have gained that give them this title. 
but not to say, well, it has to be equal. It has to be rabbi, it has to be rabbi or nothing. Let's see how Rabbanit, um, uh, how Rabbanit feels. I mean, I know how I feel. I'm proud of it. I feel like it is comfortable for me. I don't feel like I walk into a space and I'm introduced that way. Anyone has to feel uncomfortable with that title. They may think my husband's a rabbi. I don't know. But usually they ask me and I say no. And so I feel that I'm able to do more and get into more spaces with Rabbanit than, uh, than rabbi. But I understand why women have pushed for rabbi. I'm just not sure where it's going to go. Okay, thank you for that very fair answer. I'm going to point out just parenthetically that from my own experience in teaching Chatanim, people getting ready to get married, and from speaking to various Yotot Halacha, I've said time and time again that if a person has a question about Nida, about the laws of family purity, as you don't want to call it, in my experience, Yotot Halacha know more than 90% of rabbis. I know that certain people have said at certain times, oh, it can't be a valid concept because they clearly don't have the training Anyone who suggests that they don't have the training has either not spoken to a Yotzet Halacha or hasn't spoken to your average synagogue rabbi about the same topics. I am not suggesting that every Yotzet Halacha is somehow equivalent to a Gadah Hador when it comes to the laws of Nida. That is not true. But I think that some people are wildly overestimating the competence of your average synagogue rabbi or yeshiva rabbi when it comes to these halachot and downplaying the competence of the average yotzot halacha. Yotzot halacha, when it comes to that particular area, at least in my experience, they're usually far more adept than the average synagogue rabbi is or the average teacher in a yeshiva. I'll just throw that out there. And I think that's an important point to make. I I also want to say I was surprised that this summer... I ended up getting a phone call. I, I really thought, again, like the Megillah readings, we had kind of gotten on the other side of the Yoetzet Halakha or the Morot Halakha. Every program has their own name. But that it had become fairly clear that there is a, you talked about Sniut, right? That there's even a modesty element that is it's such a big value in Judaism, right? And, and here there's something more modest about women calling other women to discuss bodily discharge and sexuality and so on. And I really thought we had, you know, in my naive way, perhaps, that we were on the other side of that. And um, this summer to my, uh, you know, I was very disconcerted to discover that that is very much not true. I got a phone call from a, again, I would say a, a Yeshiva University rabbi who let me know quite aggressively that they do not accept Yotzot Halakha, that, you know, and he named the various rabbis that don't accept it, and that this is a break break from tradition, from Misora, and um, and so on. And uh, I was very shaken. I was very shaken. And, and then afterwards, very saddened, because um, certainly the Yoatzot I know in the States are very from, uh, very from women, very Yereshamayim, right? Very God-fearing, very Tsanua, very modest. Uh, if anything, they are not playing the feminist, you know, game in any way. Um, they really are doing it um, because they believe that this is a way for them to encourage more women to keep, uh, to keep these mitzvot. And so it was very sad to me that this remains something so contentious, presumably because of the fear of women wanting to become rabbis and want women wanting to push the glass ceiling and taking away leader, halakhic leadership. Or, you know, it could be I'm being unkind and it really is from a place of this just isn't done, this isn't the misora. And if we, something you asked me earlier, if we threaten this piece, what does it mean for the macro? What does it mean for the bigger pieces? You can't move pieces around. right? Like if that's what it says, then that's that's what that's what is, um, you know. That's a little simplistic because I often point out that Judaism is at the forefront, for instance, uh, instance of reproductive technology and halakha. The Catholics aren't 
right? They're going to say naturalism and they're going to say that's our theology and our, our practice. And we don't interfere um, theologically with uh, what God has determined for this couple. And, and that's you can't use birth control either, right? And here we have Judaism where like the, the incredible um, halakhic, you know, I would say the technological advances and halakha go side by side with things that were never heard of, unprecedented, or need some, you know, reframing of certain older halakhic ideas. And we're not afraid of that. So something here in the societal pieces creates a lot of um, antipathy and fear and resistance. And yet in other areas, I would say to think that we're still where the Khatam Sofer is or where we were 500 years ago with science, medicine, and technology is ludicrous. And yet we're not afraid of that. Now, I'm sure people will hear this and say, no, you can't compare them. I know you can't fully compare them, but you can kind of compare them. In other words, there have been changes I'm going to give an example, and you're well, you know, you can do with it as you wish. Electricity, right? We prohibit electricity. Fascinating conversation why we do that, but we use the Shabbos clock, which basically allows us to use electricity, right? Like that that idea that certain things we don't have to be afraid of, um, that we can we can we can find um halakhic ways to work with electricity is is first of all fascinating and brilliant. And I think that's the, that's halakha. But then when it comes to certain areas like um like women, gender, disability, mental health, except that Ravioni Rosenzweig has really done an incredible job in, in revolutionizing new ways of looking at mental health, right? Another example that until he came along, Shota, that was it, that's what you had, that's what people use, like a very, very limited definition of what mental health looked like. And so sometimes I wonder why we have to be so afraid, like if we could partner a little better, then maybe we could um, we could be less afraid and open up new spaces for conversation and for halakhic conversation. Okay, Nechama, we're almost out of time. There's a lot more that I would have asked you. If we had more time, perhaps I'll have you back on a different time because this is a fascinating conversation. But I'd like to conclude with what may be a controversial question. I call it that because I'm guessing that some people will sit up and take notice. I would ask you, what would you say to somebody who said to you, I am really bothered by the bracha, Shalom Asani Isha, that men say in the morning, we praise God who did not make me a woman. And the reason I ask this question now, it's not just a random question. Obviously, it generally relates to what we said, but it also touches upon a number of the points. It's a halachic bracha, we say it every day, it's part of the regular liturgy that's said every single day. Along with that, it also gets into the question of how we understand it. I was always taught that we're reminding ourselves that we have a greater obligation than women, the men would say, and therefore... We're telling ourselves that we have more to do to fix ourselves. We are not as holy. And in contrast, the women who say, he has made me like his will, that could be understood also, either according to the simple shot as he made me the way he wanted to make me and I have no complaints, or as some would say, no, I am like God's will. I am more naturally in tune with God's will. However we understand this, whether it's understood as apologetics or otherwise, what would you say to somebody who came to you and said, I'm bothered by this bracha? Great question. Since we're towards the end of the podcast, I won't be able to do the whole source analysis that I would like to do. I will say it appears in the Talmud in Tractate Menachot. Rabbi Mayer says someone, you know, you have to say these three brachot. Um, one of them is Shalom Asani Bor, Shalom Asani Isha, Shalom Asani Israel. Actually, one of them is positive. Two of them are negative. God, thank you, God, for making me an Israelite. Thank you, God, for not making me an ignoramus. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Okay, and so clearly the ignoramus and the woman are, the, the Talmud even asks, what's the difference between the two? They come up with an answer. 
you know, it really wasn't part of the daily liturgy. It's not part of the 15 blessings of morning, uh, of the morning, the 15 Birkot HaShachar. Um, and for quite a long time, it was really held in a different part of the prayer book, kind of like you had to remember as a man to say these, these three um, at some point in the day, when I think the sitter became very uniform and codified, right, when it was all brought together, someone said, oh, you might as well make it easier for men to say these, they're going to forget them, so we'll dump them in here with the Birkota Shachar. Um, I, Rabbi Daniel Sperber, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Sperber has a wonderful book where he shows that not every community was saying this bracha, that was it really, could, could you formulate it differently? I won't say that's apologetics. To me, the historical context and the evolution of a text is always very interesting. The reality is this is what's said in traditional Orthodox prayer books. Um, first of all, I would say to someone, thank you for being bothered by this, right? Like I think most people, my husband included, will say, I, I don't really think about it. Like, oh, I say it every day, but I don't really think about it, which already is like, why don't you think about it? Look at what you're saying. Um, second of all, I would explore the possibility if it really bothered someone and he felt it was extremely offensive, does he have to say it? And for that, I might consult with a rabbinic authority that I respect as to if someone, if this is getting in the way of Zavodat Hashem, is this bracha absolutely necessary? Is there a formulation that might be more, uh, more uh, uh, appropriate for him or could we suggest anything? If my And I haven't looked into that, by the way, because I've actually almost never gotten that question. <laughs> Um, but if the answer is no, this is tradition, this is what we have to do, then I talk a little bit about what it means to continue a tradition from Rabbi Mayer onward that we're not as comfortable with, um, but that it reflects an ongoing tradition of prayer. And what could the person maybe do instead of saying, the words are, but could he be thinking that God made me a man, right? Instead of thinking about not being a woman, could he reflect on what it means for him to be a Jewish man? So those are things I would call those more the pastoral counseling, right? How do we handle texts that are really difficult for us, maybe even offensive to us thousands of years later? Do we throw them out? Do we try to work with them? Do we try to, as we say them, think what is meaningful for us to say? I will say myself, I say shasani shasani kirtano. I have added the two words, thanking God for making me a woman, making me in God's will. It is a formulation that appears in other uh, earlier Sidurim, uh, it's not from nowhere, but I, I really like that. Like it's working with Rabbi Meir, Shasani Israel, God who has made me an Israelite, like that positive thanks of gratitude for being who I am. So that's that's where I would take it. I would not reject it. I would not, you know, uh, reject reject the bracha, but I would try to work in a way to make that blessing something that's meaningful. Because if the blessings aren't meaningful, then why are we saying that? Right. Then, then we have to find a way to, to work with it with the prayer. OK, once again, a very fair and enlightening answer. I want to thank you so much for your honesty and for teaching me so much today. I really learned a lot and enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure my listeners will feel the same way. Rabbi Nechama Goldman Barris, thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. 
I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>